0: Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 19 through 31 as we continue our series uh, through the book of Acts. And that's, well, I'll tell you what page that's on in just a moment. Ah, 917 of your Pew Bibles. And let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. For some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, we've been spending considerable time in, in the book of Acts. Uh, week after week, we've been seeing what the Lord uh, has revealed in his word there. And and one of the things I don't want you to forget that we're seeing is that really the, the, the grand title looming over the book of Acts should be something like this. Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And the reason that's the case is because Uh, Sure, we see apostles doing mighty things. Sure, we see um, disciples growing and the church growing. But really, who is doing all of this? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And um, Luke, who is leading us through this inspired word of God, is not letting us forget it. He wants to show us time and time again that Jesus... Um, in these early days of the church and even right now is sitting at the right hand of the father on the throne on high and he is ruling his church by the power of the spirit do you believe that do you believe that jesus right now sits at 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 the right hand of the father to breathe life into his church to breathe life into our church Uh, we we can't forget that as we go through the book of acts And there's a few um, ways that Luke has just shouted this from the rooftops. One of them we saw last week. Jesus saved a sinner. And not just any sinner. He saved Saul. Do you realize what a big deal that is? Saul who is persecuting the church. Saul who made it his life's mission to kill Christians to arrest them and drag them to Jerusalem. Saul, who was walking um, on the road to Damascus, chasing down Christians who were fleeing from him. And he had uh, papers of extradition, uh, papers that stood against them that he could use to drag them back to Jerusalem. And on the very road in which he was going to hunt Christians, God hunted down him. Not Not to kill him, but to save him. And he stopped Paul right in the middle of his war path. And he says, now you serve me. It was the risen Lord Jesus that did that. And if Jesus can save Saul, who is the Apostle Paul, then he can save anyone. No one is too far out of, out of uh, Christ's reach. It was true in that day, and it's true today. Don't forget it. But there's something else here. Right? What, what do we see? We see Paul, the sinner, being saved. And now he's this baby Christian who starts speaking about Jesus. Do you know that that's, that's what Christians do? That's what newborn Christians do. They, they start talking about Jesus. And, and it's a wonderful thing. It's like when a, when, when a baby's born, he starts to cry. When a Christian is given new life, they want to, in different, different kind of ways, start to talk about Jesus. I've seen this in many of you. I, I, I recall when, when I uh, first saw the Lord Jesus with, with incredible clarity and said, i got to tell someone about this. Saul, the baby Christian, talking about Jesus. That's really what, what Christians do throughout their whole life. And by the way, isn't this amazing? Isn't it amazing that Saul... On that war path is now publicly proclaiming Jesus. Uh, skeptics of Christianity really have to wrestle with this fact. How do you have this 180-degree turn? How do you have this complete shift? A man who had a promising future hunting down Christians suddenly joins them. And it's well documented. If you want to dismiss Christianity, first, you have to go, you have to wrestle with Saul. You have to wrestle with the change that happened with him. And I think the very clear answer is that God, the risen Lord Jesus, burst into his life on the road to Damascus and saved him. But there's something else here. And that's what, that's what we're getting to today. Because right after Saul is saved in that dramatic conversion, what do we see? Well, at first, it kind of seems disappointing. It's just a bunch of failed attempts at ministry. <laughs> it's, it's a bunch of attempts for him to, uh, to speak the Lord Jesus, and he's rejected and rejected and rejected. In fact, what we see in verses 19-31, following his dramatic conversion, is like a ministry boot camp. It's, it's not easy. And it's not particularly um, the, the kind of thing that we would spend a lot of time reading over and over. But it's really important, because what we see in this passage is that Jesus not only saves sinners but he also forms them into disciples. He forms them into vessels that that can minister to a, a desperate world. And he did that with Paul and he does that with us. And that's what we need to see. We need to not just jump past this transition text. We need to lean into it. We're going to see how God forms his disciples. And then we need... to to see very clearly why this is good news. Those are the two points. How God forms his disciples, what he did in Paul's life, what he does in our life, and then why this is truly good news. Well, notice how God forms his disciples. Notice what he does in in, in Saul's life uh, to make him that apostle of the faith that we now have all personally benefited from by God's grace. How does God do that? Well, first of all, uh, we we, we see three elements uh, that that he uses uh, to to shape in Paul's life. And the first one is time. Time. There's a lot of time that passes in this text. I don't know if you noticed it. Um, But if you you look at this text, it almost seems like things are, are, are moving very quickly. But then we jump over to Galatians 1 and we heard uh, what what um, Elder Wagner read this morning and we see that what's happening is there is a great span of many years going by before Paul even begins his first missionary journey. In fact, between verses 22 and 23, there's three years. Look, in verse 20, uh, 22, we hear that, that he's... Um, Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then, verse twenty-three: When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Well, what we know from Galatians one is those many days were three entire years. And what was Paul doing during those three years? Well, he was spending most of them in the Arabian desert. What's he doing out in the Arabian desert? Here's Paul, the baby Christian, who just has had this eye-opening experience of the Lord Jesus. And he's got some learning to do. He's got some training to do. And he has to have this kind of time of seminary um, saturation, as it were, out in the desert. Getting his his doctorate of the desert. And he goes out there to encounter the Lord Jesus. What is he doing? He's, He's spending time alone with God. He's he's learning of the Lord and he's he's preparing to speak for him boldly. And that's what he does. He comes back and he speaks in Damascus. And then what happens later? Well, he goes back home to Tarsus and then we're, we're told in Scripture that there's seven long years that pass while he's in Tarsus. Until then, he starts his missionary journey in Antioch. Ten long years of waiting and preparation You have to imagine, you have to think, isn't Paul ready to go? I mean, you can see it in him, right? He wants to speak about Jesus. The first thing he does is, let me tell you about the Lord. I don't know. I don't know that it was necessarily easy for him to spend three years in the desert away from direct proclamation of the Lord of of the Lord. I don't know that it was easy for him to spend seven years In his hometown, waiting for his first missionary journey to begin. And yet, it was exactly what this apostle of the faith needed. Because it's not yet time for him to step into the spotlight. First, he needs to mature. First, he needs to learn. First, he needs to spend time with God. To become the kind of vessel that God has shaped him to be. Now friends... It often takes time to become mature vessels for God's service. It takes time for us to be brought into that that maturity that the Lord would have us be brought into. It's a lot like like planting a garden. I've been doing that recently, uh, tending to my native plant garden out in my backyard. And and, and the way it works is first I I planted... um, uh, last year, I, I planted some measly looking uh, sprouts, and and my wife comes out, and, and I'm so excited about them. Look at the butterfly milkweed here. Look at the at, at the at the Joe Pye weed and she says, "This this these just look like weeds." And they are called weeds, but they're they're special, you know. There's they're these beautiful plants, and I'm, no no, look at what they're going to become. And I show her a picture. She goes, "Okay, okay." Well, so the first year is sleep. Well, then the next year, that's this year, they're really starting to come in. I, I think they're looking kind of impressive. And so there you have not sleep, but creep. And then next year, I have this hope that the plants will just fill in and, and blossom into this, this beautiful garden. And then you, you move from sleep to creep to leap where these gardens are, are just exploding with growth and beautiful flowers. And, and why is it, friends, that we don't think of the Christian life like that? Why is it that we're in such a hurry to be used by by God in the ways that we would have him use us? And, and yet God isn't in a hurry at all. And he says, wait, wait, are you spending time in the scriptures? Are you learning of me? Are you sitting under my grace? Are, are, are you are you willing to be used right now in the ways that I would have you used? with so that later? I can I can use you in even different ways and 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 in different kinds of impact. This is how it works. Don't despise the seasons of slow, steady growth when action feels slow and you're eager to apply what you're learning and you're eager to be used of God in dramatic ways. Sometimes, friends, the years of waiting and training and retreats are the very most important seasons for growth in God's grace. Sometimes it's in those years where we're just sitting and waiting and learning from, from, from the scriptures that we're becoming teachable and we're becoming malleable to God's purposes. And our stubbornness is being broken down. That takes time. And so, my caution to you, especially if you, if you uh, just recently became a Christian, is wait patiently. And attend to the means of grace. What does that mean? It means sitting under the scripture, reading God's word, filling your minds and your hearts with the things of God, coming to worship, spending time with the saints. Don't hurry to be used by God in the ways that you think he's going to use you, because first you need to become malleable to his purposes. All of us need that. And so time is this element that that the Lord uses to mold us and and, and, and Saul into the vessel that he would have us be. But, But also, God uses suffering. Suffering. I don't like the sound of that. Neither do I, but it's true. How does God mold us into vessels that are usable and 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 workable to his purposes. He uses suffering. Notice in this passage that Saul is ready to go. He jumps into action and he is ready to speak um, as one who is in the Lord Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing. And that is important, and that and that is a sign that he is really a Christian. And so he's speaking about the Lord Jesus. But what does he experience? Rejection. Rejection from, from the Jews who say, uh, who, who he's contending with. So, you know, get rid of this guy. He's not who we want him to be. And then he, he starts uh, speaking uh, again to, to the Hellenists, to Jews who were Greek speaking. And they say, get him out of here. And then he goes and he speaks to, uh, he tries to speak to fellow Christians. And they say, we don't know about you. you know, we, we heard you used to persecute us. So stay away. We're not so sure about you, Saul. Rejected by, by even the church. I mean, it's like this whole passage. He keeps trying and trying and trying and trying and, and putting his abilities to the test and, and it just keeps falling flat. And then comes the humiliation. You know, you're, after Paul preaches the gospel and you're saying, well, where are the converts? Then comes the basket incidents incident, right? Where he has to flee from the city like a common criminal in a basket that some of his friends let him down over the city wall uh, in. He's, he's creeping around like, like a common criminal. Why? Because people are after him and don't want him to preach the gospel. And you say, well, you know, really? That's a humiliating experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul spoke of it in 2 Corinthians 11. We're going to go there in a moment. And he said that it was one of the most humiliating experiences of his early ministry. He had to lower himself and become the hunted. He who used to hunt. And then the news in verse 30. Fellow disciples say, hey, Paul, your presence isn't helping here right now. You need to get out of town. You need, to get, you need to go home to Tarsus for a while. And then he leaves, and guess what happens? The church does great. Peace prevails in that time. What do you think Paul was thinking? He'd say, Looks like I go home, and then everything gets better. Looks like I'm out of the picture, and then the church flourishes. It's humiliating, it's humbling. What is God teaching Paul here? God is teaching Paul a lesson through suffering. And it's simply this. My grace is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is made perfect in your weakness. What did he say last, last week? We heard it. When, when Saul was saved, um, he said, this man needs to know. He, need, he needs to share in, in, in the suffering. He needs to know how much he needs to suffer to be made a vessel of of mine. And that's exactly what happens to Saul. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, 32-33. Let's start in verse 30. Paul says, If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. What's he saying? He's saying, see that humbling experience of being, becoming the hunted? becoming the persecuted, becoming the guy that has to escape the city in a basket, guess what? I learned that I'm weak. I learned that it's not my ability that gets things done. And I learned it's not about my gifts, but it's against, it's about God. It's about the God who empowers and gifts and gives ability and it's about the God who shines through weak and, 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 and insecure instruments, and he accomplishes his purpose. That's what Saul learned. And that's what we hear him shout from the rooftops. In Second Corinthians, he says, "I'm nothing special. I'm just a humbled guy with personality issues and a, and a, and a, and a history of past sins that haunt me." And yet God used me and he he taught me through my suffering that, that it's through my weakness that the gospel is advanced. And it's his power alone that does anything in me. See, friends, ministry isn't about our abilities. It's about God's ability. And I wonder if you're starting to learn that crucial lesson. I wonder if you're starting to learn it in your parenting, in your marriages, in your evangelism efforts. Could it be that the obstacles you're experiencing now are ways that God is teaching you to trust not in yourself, but in Christ? Could it be that that your suffering, you know, is is not just some some sign that everything's horrible and, and God's out to get me, but that he is building you into a fitting instrument to know your weakness so that his power shines through it? through the suffering. I mean, parenting, parenting is hard. Marriages are really hard. Evangelism is brutally hard. And you start to do any one of those things, you learn what a messed up person you are. You learn what a sinner you are. You start to really depend upon God's grace. Are you starting to do that? See, Paul is brought to the end of himself in this passage, and and that's part of this ministry boot camp. It's part of the Christian life. But then comes the third element to shape him into the vessel that God's called him to be, and that element is encouragement. Encouragement. Do you see it in verses 27 and 28? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to them. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, Barnabas is the encourager. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And so whenever, and he just, I love how he just does this over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Whenever you see Barnabas, you see a guy who's just encouraging and, and giving of himself and, and, and seeing what others miss in the church. And he's such a, a beautiful gospel optimist. Here's Barnabas. And when everyone else has given up on Saul, when everyone else has, has, has said, yeah, he's hindering ministry. Yeah, he's got personality issues. Yeah, his past sins, we're not going to get past him. And, and when they say, go home, Saul, go home. We don't want you here. Barnabas is the guy who goes to him and says, hey, Saul. I see what a mess you are. But I also see the disciple that God is forming you to be. And he looks past Paul's weakness and he sees God's strength being worked in, in Paul. And he says, that's worth investing in. The gospel is worth investing in and people who who preach the gospel are worth investing in. You see, Barnabas, that son of encouragement, he believes in other Christians. He makes risky investments in others. He promotes imperfect ministry. He doesn't get stuck on what, what hasn't been realized yet, but he looks with optimism and says, look at what the Lord is doing. Look at what he could do. And he believes that God works through imperfect people. Do we believe that? Do we do that in our homes? Do we do that in our churches? Or are we practical perfectionists who write others off as lost causes? who just see who they are right now, who just see where their, their theology is at right now. And we don't look down and, and say, look at who they be, could become and love them for that and love them for who they are now and, and what, what God is doing in them. Barnabas is a beautiful example here. Beautiful example of who we must be in the church. Now, some of, some of you are particularly gifted at this. I have, I have been personally blessed by Barnabases in this church, and it's awesome. All of us should, should not just say, oh, good, there are Barnabases, okay. We should all strive to be this kind of life-giving uh, encourager to those in the church, investing in those that have gifts that could be fanned into flames. looking at our children not 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 for their Im- current imperfections but who God is making them to be looking at our spouses not not because of their their current uh, issues but because, but but for who Christ is forming them to be that's the vision Time, suffering, encouragement, all of this weaves together in this perfect condition and God's grace behind it all to to make Saul into the kind of instrument that he would have him be, an instrument of his glory to proclaim the gospel. Now, why is this good news? It's good news because of this, friends. Jesus is in the business of using imperfect vessels to do useful work for his kingdom. good news here's Paul and we, we typically come to the New Testament and if you're anything like me you read it and you just say wow look at Paul wow look at, look at that guy but then there come moments like this where, we're, where we realize that he is human and he is imperfect and this is the same guy who in, uh, in, in Acts 26 when there's a ship sinking uh, the first thing he says is I told you so I told you not to go in this direction. Paul is not perfect. He's your typical basket case. Just like us. And yet God takes ordinary people like you and me, people with personality issues, pride problems, past sins, and he forms us into people who bring him glory. That can only really happen if we believe in a God who is full of the grace of of the gospel. It's only, that could only happen if we believe in in the the Protestant doctrine of salvation, that it's God, it's it's all of God and none of us, right? It's all of Christ on the cross. It's all of Christ in his resurrection and nothing, nothing that we bring. It's all of God's gifting. And and we say, use me, Lord. Use me as a vessel. Call this progressive sanctification. It's a fancy word, fancy term for basically saying this, that growth in grace is messy and incremental, but in Christ it is real. Progressive sanctification means this, that every day, if if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you belong to him, every day all the way to glory, you are becoming more like Jesus. And it's through all kinds of muddy roads and, 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 uh, and, and pitfalls and obstacles. But, but by his grace, we are progressing, not perfect, but progressing in grace. Now that is a wonderful word to our idealism and perfectionism, which loves to hide in our hearts and say, but you're not perfect yet. Can God really use you? But you're not there yet. Why don't you just give up? You're not a parent like that person. You're, you're not a spouse like that person. Why, why try? Why try? And that lie that Satan tells us and whispers in our, in our ear, that because we're not at the finish line that yet, because we're not fully glorified, we should just give up or call it quits um, or, 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 or descend into in internal chaos. It's a lie. And we have to address it as such. Why is it a lie? Because God, by his grace, is working in us. And though we are not perfect, we are progressing. So I ask you, what is one way over the past year that you are more like Christ today than you were a year ago? What is one way today that you are more like Christ than a year ago? And what is one way that a year from now you'd like to be more like Jesus? You see that God is shining a spotlight on an area in which you ought to be more like Jesus a year from now than you are today. Because Jesus is using imperfect vessels to do work for his kingdom, we have answers to those questions. And we can actually place our hope in the God who is full of grace to work in our hearts. You see, friends, Paul is God's work in progress. And so are we. Not perfect, but progressing. By his grace, let's get to work. Do the hard work of seeking him, of walking according to his ways, of, 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 of parenting, of, of, of marrying, of, of, of evangelism, of encouraging And because of the God we believe in, we can have hope in these endeavors. And so let's get to work because we are works in progress. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for good news, even like this. jesus christ died on the cross and rose again on the third day that new life would be bursting forth in our hearts even now and lord though we are not perfect we are progressing and though though we are not uh, where we will one day be we are on our way there and you can use us now uh, to usher in uh lord the glories of a new creation would you make our work useful and, and, and the pride that we cling to, the pride that says, Lord, it's about my ability. It's about my efforts. Would you shave that off? And through suffering, would you form us into the kinds of people that you would have us be? Who, who do wonderful work for your kingdom, not because we're wonderful, but because you are. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.